This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is fabulous to have you here as always. Thank you so much for joining me and for lending me your ears for episode 117 of the Sustainable-ish podcast. Today we are talking education and specifically eco-education. For me, it feels like schools are a really big part of the jigsaw when it comes to changing hearts and minds and to educating and empowering us all around the changes that we can make, both individually and collectively. More and more schools are running eco-clubs and hosting green days or green weeks, but sustainability is a huge topic, and there is a very strong argument for making it the mainstay of the curriculum, around which all the other topics hang. But how do we do this? when schools and teachers are already on their knees after 18 months and counting of COVID, alongside the ever-changing goalposts of the Department of Education, and ensuring that our children have that most vital of life skills, the ability to recognise a fronted adverbial. Nope, not a clue here either, and I've written two books. So today's guest is here to help. Paul Turner is a geography teacher and education lead at the Ministry of Eco-Education, a collaboration of teachers working together to put sustainability at the heart of education. Listen in to hear all about the project, their amazing ambition to have half of all UK primary schools on board by 2025, and importantly, how you can persuade the schools that you have connections with to get involved. Enjoy. Hi Paul, welcome so much to the podcast. Hello, nice to meet you. Yeah, really great to meet you. I've actually, um, I uh, met you when you did, I did one of your AIM High courses um, because you're a busy man, aren't you? You're doing a lot of stuff. Uh, Introduce yourself, tell us what you're up to. I guess I should probably say I was a geography teacher for the last 10 years and actually I was a, a head of department And it was coronavirus that gave me the nudge that I think it had been bubbling in the back of my mind to take a step out of the classroom. And I'd been involved in more and more projects. I'd developed this uh, climate breakdown scheme of work and that had sort of blown up and and there'd been lots of interest. And I just realised that if I wanted to commit to this, I had to take a step out of the classroom uh, and one school. And so, yeah, I'm involved in quite a few different projects. There's the AIM High. We've developed this uh, climate nature course and we've been delivering it 
uh, in all kinds of different ways. At the moment, it's really exciting and we're live streaming it from the Eden Project uh, from right inside the Rainforest Amazing. Dome and Mediterranean Dome. But as well as that, I do lots of freelance curriculum writing and curriculum authoring. And my angle, I describe myself as a radical geographer and I try and take a really radical stance and a really critical perspective in the things that I do. And maybe that's something we can explore mm. uh, later on. And then I guess the other thing I should say is I am the air quality officer for Sustrans and I work with schools across uh, Sussex, engaging them in, in air quality. So that's my kind of um, day-to-day yeah. uh, part-time job. And then all this other stuff fits around it. So all this other stuff, what I really wanted to, to chat to you today was well, all of what you've just said, but specifically um, all this other stuff. So the Ministry of Eco-Education. Um, so tell us about that. So I've been involved with the Ministry of Eco-Education now for about probably seven or eight months. And it's the brainchild of Dale Vince from Ecotricity. Mm. So he has a charitable foundation called the Green Britain Foundation. And he's been involved in all kinds of projects uh, in the past. And he has wanted more and more to get involved in education. Mm-hmm. So this is one aspect of what he's doing. He's also involved in apprenticeships and developing wow. kind of appropriate technical qualifications for the world that we need in the sense yeah. of um, sustainability and all those sorts of things. But uh, this is focused around initially producing a primary curriculum which embeds sustainability at the heart of education. So mm-hmm. at the moment, I don't think I'm doing a disservice to say that the eco curriculum or the eco education that young people receive is slightly piecemeal. It's yeah. a bit patchy and it's very dependent on the school, the mm-hmm. teachers. And it even still, often it's a handful of students who are involved in a special club yeah. that do something on the fringes of the everyday. And what we want to do, or what we are doing, is we are putting sustainability at the heart of every lesson for yeah. every student. And the idea then is that. Students engage with these ideas in the middle of a maths lesson Mm. uh, whilst they're exploring something that brings science and history and a bit of biology or or all aspects together. So what we've done is I've trawled through uh, hundreds of the resources from charities and organisations. And the way that we've thought we can actually do something that's slightly different is we've brought them together into a coherent curriculum. So we've almost what we've we've we're selling this as. We've done the legwork for the teachers, mm. sourced all the good stuff, and then we've stitched it together into a coherent curriculum. So at the moment as well, it, it might be that teachers know of an organisation. They might mm. have heard of Surfers Against Sewage. They might, have no, they might know that they do their Plastic Free Schools initiative. Yeah. They might know that they could go and organise a beach clean. Mm-hmm. But what we've done then is we've created a series of lessons exploring the question do we live on a blue planet Mm -hmm. and then within that they jump between some resources from surface against sewage but then there's also resources from the marine conservation society and a handful of other organizations Mm -hmm. and so it allows teachers to use all of these in a really coherent and um, kind of a way that makes sense for both them and the students yeah and you've developed this with a, a sort of pilot school haven't you I mean, the head teacher there must just be phenomenal, is he, to, to, yeah, Nick, to do that? Yeah, yeah, Nick Moss. Um, I think they're really fortunate there. I mean, he's also, I don't know if this has happened by chance or if it's been purposefully done, but his staff and the teachers he's got are um, a really good team. They're all behind each other, really supportive. And they're really bought into the idea as well that 
it's a real priority to mm-hmm. embed this kind of education for every student. So actually, they've been doing this for quite a few years. And what we've tried to do then is to develop their ideas, help support them. So, yeah, we were working from, I guess it was probably about January, hands on, going and visiting, um, running some workshops with the teachers, surveying them, canvassing all their ideas, developing the ideas that they already had. Mm. And they've been a really important part of developing the curriculum and, and also kind of sense checking it as well so that we've got people who are actually practitioners, teachers yeah. uh, working at the moment, making sure that it actually works. And then what we've been doing since September then is we've now got 15 schools across the country involved. And part of that phase was all about saying, okay, we've developed it within one context. Let's make sure it's transferable for everyone. Mm. So this group of 15 schools geographically are really spread out and diverse. So as far up uh, as Durham, Mm -hmm. far south as Plymouth, we've also got South Wales, Bradford, Liverpool, as well as down in the southeast. And we actually visited lots of those during the Great Big Green Week. So the Climate Coalition Great Big Green Week. And we've got a video coming out in the next week of the tour that we did visiting those schools. Because also what we want to do is help amplify what schools are already doing yeah. so almost sharing best practice mm. we visited some really passionate educators um, some teachers across the country who already are doing wonderful things within their schools and so part of what we want to do is help build that sense of community and help amplify what they're already doing and ultimately the ambition is then for next September to reach 100 schools and then we have a long-term goal 2025 to uh, have the Ministry of Eco-Education primary curriculum uh, across half of all primary schools, which is 10,000. So there's an ambition there. So there's 20,000 primary schools and you want to be in 10,000 of them? Yes. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. And probably quite terrifying. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, what we're realising more and more is there are, I would say hurdles, but I'm just not sure if that's the best word to describe them. There's what people perceive to be barriers. So at the moment, there are things that teachers think stop them from doing this. And so we're trying our best to help them understand that actually we've taken the national curriculum, we've reframed it around these sorts of environmental questions. And so they're still achieving the national curriculum. It's not like they're having to give up doing one thing to to achieve something else. They They can do it all. So I guess I'm just thinking now, like, so my son's year six and they're... Victorians seem to be quite a common, you know, history topic to do. But I guess in that you can start to talk about the Industrial Revolution and, you know, you can quite quickly see how you can link all these things. But I guess there will be an element of teachers and maybe even of parents going, and this this is probably a bit of a devil's advocate question. What, why should we make this the focus of the curriculum? Okay. When we created the curriculum, one of the things I wanted to do was make sure that there was a really sound academic foundation to it, that there was the reasoning behind it, because I think teachers in, in general really want to have that foundation. They, they want to understand the purpose of something before they step into it. Mm-hmm. And so part of that was actually outlining the case for, for the, a need for this kind of education, mm-hmm. partly in the sense of the climate and nature emergency. We're seeing 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming over the last 160 years. We're seeing sort of unprecedented uh, changes in terms of both nature and the climate. And so we need to shift our education in those senses in order to best prepare, but also to ensure that young people understand how they can create the world that they want to live Mm. in. So so much of this curriculum is also based around ideas of agency and empowering young people so that they understand their place within the world 
within the context of what is going on. And you know, there, there are a whole variety of organisations like Teach the Future who've canvassed young people's opinions and there's all sorts of um, statistics which show there's a real desire and a demand from mm. young people, but equally from teachers uh, and, and from wider society. Part of the problems as well is that confidence with teachers, and that's something we're trying to address as well. So we've signposted lots of the training opportunities for teachers. Mm-hmm. We've also put together a package of some reading and, and material to watch. So there's a whole variety of, of material that, mm. that teachers can use to help support them. Yeah. So what are some of the either perceived barriers or actual barriers that, that you've come across with teachers when you've been talking to them about this? I think what's interesting is there's a perception from teachers that if this was necessary, Mm-hmm. It would be coming from the top down. Yeah, yeah, the, the yeah, Department yeah. for Education would be prioritizing this and they would be instructed to do it and there would mm-hmm. be material that would be handed to them. Yeah. And that, I think, then creates this slight uncertainty. But that's the same thing across the whole climate crisis, isn't it? If these things were necessary, surely the government would be telling us that we couldn't do them or that we yeah. should do them. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that. Exactly that. And, but what that means in schools is that you get some schools that say, look, no, we're not doing this because no one's telling us to. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. And there's almost this blinkered sense that if it were that bad, someone would be yeah. solving it. But then you also get pockets of teachers who turn around and go, look, no, I fully understand this situation. We have to do something. Mm-hmm. And it's been really interesting during this journey to actually meet some of those teachers who actually feel quite isolated yeah they they feel um like they're they're sort of doing this on their own yeah and I think what we're really keen to do and there there are lots of other organizations doing this too but really trying to uh, bring together teachers to Mm. actually help them build their confidence and to realize that they're not on their own that there are lots of other people around to help support them and what's the response been of of parents like at, at your sort of pioneer or your trial school and then at the schools I mean I guess they're very early in their journey because we're recording this October so they started doing it in September but I can imagine maybe that some teachers at some senior management teams might be thinking we're going to get a backlash from the parents about this. Yeah it's definitely something we're aware of and to try and counter that what we've tried to do partly because it's also how we perceive uh, anything to be successful you need to bring in the whole community Mm. And you need to model almost what you're trying to convey and to teach. So there is consultation. There's we, what we've broken up the process into five steps just to try and make it a bit more manageable. And mm. the first step, there are a couple of surveys and there is information to share with parents and governors and teachers, mm-hmm. which help everyone understand what the project is about to then also gather their opinions and ideas so that they are part of the process mm-hmm. and that the school can tweak uh, the curriculum and tweak what they're doing to use the strengths of their community. And actually what we found is that that process has helped temper lots of the concerns that I think initially, yes, lots of parents turn around and say, look, I don't, I don't want my child to suddenly become an activist and want to Be go off. indoctrinated and... into yeah, well, yeah, exactly that. And then you start to you start to say, well, actually, look, this is coming from very well-respected scientists. Look at the people who are saying this. We're not taking something from a, a niche sort of mm. radical group. This is widespread and this is common. And these are the people who are saying it. And I think once you start to, to do that, people actually understand. I think also it's about with anything, you've got to tell people what it's all about. Yeah. And once they know, uh, I think that that helps as well. We, we In one school, we had 
uh, quite a high proportion of families who were farmers. And right. so there was a concern. Yeah, yeah. One of the topics explores veganism mm -hmm. and what that means. And they were concerned that then there would be some sort of conflict in the yeah. sense of, of their children. But I think ultimately what all of the resources are trying to achieve is to get young people to be questioning and explore mm -hmm. the world. So it's not necessarily saying this is the right thing or the wrong yeah. thing. It's just let's go and explore it and see what we think. Yeah, definitely. And schools, to me, feel like such a almost no brain is not the right word, but like in terms of the connections they have, you know, so obviously our schools are there to educate our young people. Um, but they also, I think, as you've discussed, this idea of agency and empowerment and um, but obviously the, the, school, the, the, the young people can then go out and disseminate that information you know, how else do we reach every household in the country or nearly every household in the country? And the, that idea of this kind of the school community and, and the, uh, I talk a lot with my audience about this idea of ripples, you know, that it's not yeah. just the fact that you're educating these, these young people, it's the, the kind of outward ripples that will come from that as well. And that's just huge, I think, isn't it? Yeah, but maybe what I should have said with the last step as well is we have purposefully organised events for parents and we've termed those sort of lessons for parents, mm -hmm. which is both to build their knowledge and understanding more broadly of the climate and nature emergency, but also to expose them to some of the lesser materials so that right. then they feel more confident. But you're exactly right. In order to build the types of communities that we need that are resilient, regenerative and fit within a sustainable future, schools are an integral part of that. And I think lots of people know this. Lots of people have, have experienced this. And it might be you know, they hark back to a time where actually schools were often seen as this, but there's so much potential. So both within the idea of sharing knowledge, just like you say, what's said in a classroom is then shared at the dinner mm. table that, that young people will then discuss this with their parents and, and with other family members. And actually, in terms of a way of sharing knowledge, that's a really, there's something really valuable about that process that I think hearing it from their own children. Yes is a way of reaching an audience that actually you just can't do in any other way. There's also a sense as well about this, this urgency around how quickly we need to disseminate this sort of information mm. that, that society needs to shift. And, and this is all part of that. But then also that sense of community. And it could be through shared space and the idea of schools giving up space or, or, or allowing community groups to come in and use spaces. Mm -hmm. but the thing I always really like as well is that idea of the intergenerational connections yes. that could be created and the idea of sharing knowledge within a community. You know, there's, there's so much um, knowledge and skill that's probably siloed within certain yes. aspects of a community. And if you can bring that in, there's so much more value to that mm. as well. Yeah. And um, just to pick back up on that bit you were saying about, um, you know, these, the, the power of something coming from your, your own children or your own grandchildren, I think it's, I always have a little wry smile when, you know, maybe, and we probably all had this situation where we've been sort of trying really hard with certain things that we're doing. I don't know whether it's reminding the children to turn the lights off or, you know, saying, no, you can't have that magazine because it's got loads of plastic tat on it and things like that. And then, and then they'll, and, and you sort of just feel like you can't have that, you can't go there with your parents. Like it would be too emotional, you know, like it would be yeah. too, just a really difficult conversation. And then the child just rocks up and goes, well, why have you got your lights on? Like you really ought to be, you know, and and yeah. and then the grandparent kind of can't argue with that. And and you're just like, oh, awesome, brilliant, thank you. <laughs> I think with schools as well, there's this this perceived neutrality that mm -hmm. schools yes. are a safe space, partly because educators, teachers are trained in order to have those sorts of conversations and to enable people to understand uh, something better. Mm. 
But also, I think rather than with a news outlet, there's often this perceived yes. bias that, that that's not necessarily associated with schools. And therefore, I think you can then start to have conversations quicker and easier than, mm. than through other avenues. Yeah. So we were talking just before I hit record about some of the, I guess, frustrations maybe I've had as a parent trying to encourage my children's schools to, to kind of get doing some stuff. And the last school that my um, that my kids were at, you know, I probably went and asked the head two or three times, you know, can we have an eco club? Can we do eco schools? And yes, yes, we're looking into it. Yes, we're looking into it. And then obviously COVID hit. And I just thought, you know what, like we just need the poor, poor schools have got so much to do. Everybody's got so much to deal with at the moment. How can we as parents, and sometimes it feels like you're the lone voice. You know, I felt like it's probably just me who's coming up and asking this. And they're probably going, oh God, like, you know, it's me banging the drum and they'll kind of try and avoid me in the playground and all that kind of, how can we exert any kind of influence or I guess make things happen? Because I have this enormous sense of frustration that I feel like I could, I could, help you know a school to get some stuff going really Mm. happily volunteer my time and could quite easily make some quite meaningful stuff happen and yet I can't they're not kind of letting me in yeah I think I was also saying that I've felt similarly about my children's school I mean what we have found with the schools we've been working with is actually there is a ripple effect in the sense that as soon as someone hears about it they then if they're a parent, are really keen then for that to be happening within their mm-hmm. child's school. That seems to be quite an effective way to share the information between schools. Also because I think parents are actually, uh, of all the people within a school, often the ones that are listened to most. Oh, really? and that, that parents can, can often have a, a quite a big impact in terms of the way that um, the direction of a school. Mm-hmm. What might be best is to try and use something like a parents' association mm. to collect together a number of parents and then have a bit more weight behind yeah. something. I mean, what we're really keen to do is we've, we're hosting an online event towards the end of October where we are intending to publicise the project more, mm. but we're definitely keen to help support parents to then contact their schools, yeah. to share information, to tell schools what the project is about mm-hmm. so that they can then come on board. Because yeah. also I think the, the thing that I should maybe say as well is that when schools get on board with this, there's there's a whole, uh, there's great flexibility. Mm-hmm. So we've got some schools who there are a couple of classes within the whole school, uh, one year group that are exploring some of the materials and their right. teacher is using it. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, somewhere like uh, our very first school, Minchinhampton, they have run this through every single year group. Yeah. And this is pretty much their curriculum, along with a couple of other key threads so it doesn't that this and I talk about this a lot, you know, so it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It's not like we're overhauling our whole curriculum and we're going to do it next month. You know, you can kind of yeah. tiptoe into it and explore it. And and I think yeah. that feels much less daunting, doesn't it? Yeah. And saying to a to a, um, a school like you've got to throw everything out, your whole scheme of work, create a whole new load of lesson plans. And, you know, yeah. you can just imagine the teachers going, no. Yeah, because <laughs> also what we want to do is. Uh, allow the teachers to use what they've already created so we mm-hmm. know that there's lots of teachers who have created something which is the beginnings of something that's really good right. and so we're looking for opportunities to then uh, connect it with what already exists within our mm-hmm. curriculum and to see how things can be built on the other thing that we've also found through this project is that parents are like you say very willing to offer their support and expertise mm. and that 
is also another kind of asset to this project is that so many of the topics lend themselves to actually bringing in parents who have certain expertise around we had one case where uh, sustainable fashion was one of them yeah so one of the topics uh builds to a fashion show mm-hmm. and there was a parent who came on board who had expertise around that another one was in waste management so they oh, ran amazing. a company that actually collected recycling yeah. and collected waste and so they came in and gave a, a talk to students and again, that's that community idea that mm. you're using the expertise and knowledge from people. And I think that's that's so beneficial as well. There's the cynical part of me going, do you know what? I couldn't even get them to run an eco club. How am I going to get them to sign up to, you know, because this is I've I've been in and spoken to um, sort of the head teachers, of my kids new school and, and sort of said, look, you know, if you can take this seriously, it, it needs embedding across the whole curriculum. It needs to be part of the ethos of the school. It needs to be, you know, like yeah. that stick of rock and and the easiest thing for them to do is to go, do you know what, come in and run an eco club or, you know, and then they're not even letting me do that. Does it need, like your head teacher at Minchinhampton, does it need to come from, you know, a, a member of the senior management team? It feels to me like it needs that almost leadership from within as well. Yeah, you're right. With our 15 pioneer schools, the only way that they are working at the moment is because there is one or two key members of staff mm. who fully support this. and. It's a slight shame that that's what's needed. Yeah, but yeah. You need someone to drive it with the energy and enthusiasm and commitment because mm. you know, we've, we've sort of re- referenced this before, this idea that there's so many pressures on schools. Yeah. There's so much that schools can do, should be doing. And this is often seen as something that's a little bit um, as an added extra. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice to have, yeah. It gets left at the wayside. And unless you've got that key member of staff, and I mean, we have purposefully searched out Yes, uh, yes, these sorts of characters, because obviously we want to help partly to, to help build their mm, confidence mm. and share the wonderful work that they're doing. But also because we know that's one of the key to successes early on is to make yeah. sure that we've got people who are willing to help drive it. Ideally, we'll reach a tipping point yes. where it will become the norm. And I, I mean, I'm pinning a lot of hopes on November COP26. Mm. There's so many materials from organisations who were prioritising, who were publicising COP26 and I think schools are bringing those Mm. on board schools are thinking about doing something special yeah and hopefully what will then follow is schools will say look how can we actually embed this further how can we build on what we've done from COP26 and I guess that's another place where uh, opportunity almost for us to come in as parents to go that was amazing thank you so much for for sharing about COP26 with our children how can we now make that meaningful rather than it being a drop-in couple of lessons or, a, yeah. you know, we went and planted some seeds. How can we now expand on this and make it more than a sort of a tokenistic gesture? Yeah, you know? <laughs> definitely. definitely. I think a lot of schools are very comfortable at the moment giving over a day or mm. a week at some point in the year. Yes, have a green week or a green day. Yeah, and it's yeah. seen, it's like a tick box. Yeah. It's sort of, we've done that bit and now we can focus on, you know, what's really needed. Yes, um, yeah. And there, there has been a bit of a process to bring people around to the idea of actually, that's not where we want to be. We can start there, but there's, mm. there are stepping stones. And I think also, we, with anything in life, you need to be realistic in the sense that it's much easier to do lots of small steps than yes. it is to do one big step. Yeah. And so if having one day in the year or a week in the year is the first step, mm-hmm. we've used that actually with, we were visiting a school up in Bradford and they'd organised uh, a green week. And for one of the days, they had a collapsed timetable and 
the students each year group explored different materials in the curriculum and it was a really really good day there was an event at the end of the day to the parents and mm. the students performed songs and poems mm. and showed the work that they created and it's not where we want to be at the end of the process yeah. but it was a starting point where now the teachers understand what the curriculum's about yeah. they've been exposed to some of the materials and then now they are building them into the rest of their curriculum yeah so you can use that almost as a sort of springboard to to yeah. bigger and better things mm. um the other thing i wanted to ask you was i i know a, sort of a couple of or a few you know a few teachers kind of in my audience and things and and um, maybe they're working part time but they're the one who's you know volunteered to run the eco club mm. um but that it feels for them very much like they're on their own like it's an uphill battle like the the rest of the teachers are just going rolling their eyes at them um yeah. not wanting to engage not wanting to have any additional work to do um so if you are that kind of lone voice within a school as a teacher any tips for that like where do you go from there one of the things i've found is regional networks yes. so there are often people within your local community or within your county who share similar interest and passion mm -hmm. so there is something called the uk sustainable schools network yeah uh, which has sort of been growing as a network that brings together lots of, of teachers it's a little bit more student-led mm -hmm. there's also the the national education union the neu has a climate network which oh, is okay cool proactive yeah also proactive in the sense of, of lobbying uh, for greater regulation mm -hmm. and, and and bringing in more from the top down yeah I think one of the biggest shames is that it's still in incredibly underfunded. Yeah, I was going to ask you about costs. Yeah, <laughs> well, conversations I've had with uh, people involved in environmental education. I think there was maybe 20 years ago, there was a bit of a heyday where there was lots of funding. The number of organisations ballooned and lots of schools had something within their, their local authority. But over the last decade, that's shrunk. Mm. Um, yes, there's forest schools and, and increasingly schools have, ha have now have a forest school. Yeah. But in terms of broader environmental education, it's, it's very difficult. And I think lots of charities are not necessarily want to say struggling, but it's a hard place to be. Mm. And often, actually, they rely on um, schools that are willing to pay. Yeah. And then it, re it relies on schools having the finance to be able to then pay for uh, some sort of package or resource yeah, yeah, yeah. or someone to come in and, yeah. and that's definitely not where we want to be in the sense of it, it then becomes a bit of a lottery as to whether your school has that ability or not what, what I have heard is that the department for education does or has recently set up a sustainability department there are some staff within the DfE who are looking at this oh, wow. and it would be interesting to know where they're heading and what their plans are yeah and you know on that cost point I guess you know, this is this is another argument, I guess, that I think some of the teachers, you know, I've been hearing from say, even just around something as simple as recycling, like, well, it will cost us more, apparently, you know, however, the yeah. I don't I don't really understand how recycling systems work in schools, but you know, it will it will apparently cost us more to, to implement something as, as simple as recycling. And that's, and, and I guess that, you know, if you're then trying to, that feels like a real first rung on the ladder, doesn't it? And if you can't even get that yeah. past, like, oh, God, like, what am I doing? Yeah, so the way it often works with, with schools is they have to pay for their uh, waste to be disposed of. And so recycling is an additional cost. Mm. And yes, in terms of budgets, it's often hard for them to do that. 
Um, there are schemes like TerraCycle, mm. which is a really good one. Schools can act as hubs for that, and they can yes. actually gain, gain money by recycling those their materials uh, that can't necessarily normally be recycled within standard yeah. networks. The other thing, though, recycling is an interesting one in terms of level of ambition and yeah, yeah. <laughs> where we put our enthusiasm. One thing that we've increasingly realised as well is often the environmental or sustainable education within schools is not sure the best way to describe it. It's often quite low in ambition. Yes, and yes. the focus of it is about litter picking yes. or behaviour change, which mm. isn't actually that significant. Right. And I think where we need to shift schools and also part of this curriculum is, is about that is actually realising where is the best place to put our effort? Where can we, uh, where can we get the best return in terms mm. of where we, we kind of commit ourselves? And actually, it might be that recycling isn't that. And so mm. you, you park the idea of recycling and let's focus on something, something yes. else. And I think that's something that we need to do more or do better of as well, just more broadly in society, is actually getting people to understand what are the behaviour changes yeah. that are most significant. And, but I think that's it, the, the difficulty there is we've been sold this recycling message for so long that, you know, that's, that's the, that's the answer. That's what we need to do. If we do that, we can pat ourselves on the head and it's wonderful, but also with things like plastic and litter, it's very visible, isn't it? And like the yeah. kids love litter picking. Yeah. You know, I guess if, if that's what the kids like doing, there are then ways I always think there's loads of, you know, there's loads of maths you can do around that. There's loads yeah. of geography you can do around that. There's loads yeah. of, uh, you know, citizenship around writing letters and things. So I guess it's, you know, the, the activities, like you say, that you might already be doing, how can we, add value to these and make them kind of more impactful a good way to go with recycling or, or plastics is to say okay let's go and do something like a litter pick or, or let's explore our plastic consumption mm. but then let's go a bit deeper and think actually what are the main sources of plastic pollution is actually fishing one of the largest mm. sources and actually then should we start thinking about our diets and is mm. it actually the way that we uh, fish is that mm. actually a bigger source of plastic pollution and yeah. so thinking about plastic straws or plastic packaging is that actually something that's a bit lower down on the list and so getting young people to think a bit more critically about that I think even at the primary level mm. is definitely possible something that we've been surprised well, not surprised of but I think we've appreciated is actually how uh, receptive young people are at a very young age mm. and actually how much they understand so one of the things that we did is we recorded uh, young people's responses about what the climate and nature emergency is and how what burning fossil fuels does mm, and what climate mm. change is and actually they were really eloquent and really good at explaining it there's some really useful models and analogies one of them is the bathtub and thinking about how by turning on the tap we're adding more water to the mm. bathtub and the water is actually carbon into the atmosphere right yeah, yeah yeah and you can start to then play with some of those analogies to get young people to to really quickly and easily understand what it is that we're doing to the world and, mm. and how climate change is happening so that's something else we've tried to do is embed more yeah. of those sorts of fun little ways to actually understand what we are doing to the world but i guess some of the difficulty here will come in that we're asking teachers to deliver something that they're learning for the first time as well. And that we maybe as a generation don't have those critical thinking skills. And we hadn't thought beyond straws and to, to and just suddenly, and maybe there's a defensiveness that comes with that because, oh, like now I feel bad that I, I maybe I should have known that or do you know? Yeah, you're 100% right. And that's something early on as well to say to staff, part of this process, part of engaging with this curriculum is to realise that it's a learning journey for you as well. Mm. 
And you have to be very open about that, especially with young people and to say, look, I don't have all the answers, but we're going to find them out mm, together. Yes. Um, and, and that can be a really useful way to actually approach education more broadly as well. And how do you explore like the feelings that come with this and the emotions? Because teachers might be learning this stuff for the first time, going home, freaking out, feeling yeah. the, the, those feelings of overwhelm, despair, all those sorts of things, and, and trying to manage that within their, their young people as well. And obviously the very last thing we want to do with our young people is kind of heighten, uh, either introduce any eco-anxiety or heighten yeah. any eco-anxiety that they're already feeling. That, that's probably quite a difficult one to balance, is it? Yeah, there are a couple of organisations who are doing this very well. So there's uh, a lady called Rachel at Thoughtbox Education, who runs the course empowering teachers to have those conversations oh, and preparing them. So there are people, another one is Clover Hogan, who mm. she's a very good public speaker as well, who's spoken about this idea of moving eco-anxiety to action. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we're trying to do with this curriculum as well, is look to, let's start by saying and identifying there is what you might term a problem or there is an issue, but let's not ponder on that. Yes. Let's not stop there. Let's move beyond that and say, okay, what is it that we can do? What are the solutions that already exist? Because mm. also I think so much of this is actually saying to young people, we're not waiting for some silver bullet. We're not waiting for someone to invent the solution. Mm. That's not what's needed. Instead, this is about us reflecting on the way that we structure society in terms of our own behaviours. What is it that we've, we have mm. um, that we can then prioritise and shift? Yeah. And that's all part of the curriculum. And actually, from my experience of teaching young people I have then at the end of this sort of sequence and series of lessons young people actually feel far more positive yeah. about everything because they do know more yeah. and that knowledge is empowering and and actually being able to then ask the good questions yes. and be inquisitive helps them to to yeah. um to yeah to feel more agency and that's so important isn't it and I think that's a big part of maybe what we're missing at the moment more widely is that we've we've had a lot of like some brilliant sort of Attenborough documentaries been on prime time and things but my experience is that they've sort of d delivered all this really quite horrifying information and then left you hanging there and mm -hmm. not presented some I not not necessarily you know we're not expecting solutions tied up with a bow but I guess also this is where that sense of empowerment and agency comes in and this idea that actually there's something I can do about this. So I was talking to somebody at a school over the summer and they'd done a, they're doing some really great stuff. And they'd done a survey a couple of years ago with the, I think with the staff and the parents and the pupils. Mm. And there was this, you know, great awareness of climate as an issue, but there was just this complete disconnect between realizing that there was anything that they could do. It was almost like they were waiting for some, some for the government for businesses mm. it was someone else's job to deal with and I think yeah. that's so important that we try and engender that agency and that empowerment like you know in our young people but hopefully that will filter out to to parents in the community as well I, I think also with education so much of what we're trying to do obviously is to prepare children for the future mm. and that future is increasingly uncertain and unpredictable and so then I think you, you can find yourself stuck in a loop where you're then thinking, well, OK, what should we be teaching if mm. we're not sure what the future is going to be yes, like? Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the way that we then approach that is to say, look, let's prioritise the sort of world that we, we think we want in mm -hmm. terms of a, a better future. And then to prioritise teaching now that then prepares young people and enables that future world, because mm -hmm. it's, it's the actions of 
young people of us now that create the future. Mm -hmm. And I think thinking about futures is also an important part of the curriculum as well. Because I think um, lots of young people feel like they're on a conveyor belt, that their future is set. And they just have to jump through these hurdles. They do these exams and then they'll go to the next stage and the next stage. And actually taking a step back from that and saying, that's not how this works. Mm. But actually uh, there is an alternative. And by being critical and asking these questions, you can actually steer a different um, future. And you can also play a more more active role in shaping that as well. Yeah. And I think we're seeing now we, we, we're seeing young people who increasingly are feeling like they uh, want to be heard and mm-hmm. that they are sharing their feelings and attitudes towards mm-hmm. this. And then I guess then the next stage is sort of moving that forward in the sense that then that does result in um, action. Yeah. Yeah. Have you found any um, or either knock on effect or maybe that it's even a barrier in that? I think sometimes schools think if they're going to do start talking about sustainability and things, then they're going to have to overhaul their whole heating system and their whole infrastructure and, you know, grounds and that kind of thing. And obviously that's where kind of big budget questions and things come in. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no reason why a school can't pick up and run this curriculum in exactly the buildings that they're in, you know, maybe acknowledging that it's not perfect and those kinds of things, but that doesn't need to be a barrier, does it? Yeah, no, it definitely doesn't need to be a barrier. And there isn't a certain type of school where this would work best. Because also another question has often been, does this need to happen in a rural school? Do we need mm. lots of green space? Do we need a big site? Yes. And actually, you know, the middle of, so we're working with one school in Bristol, right in the middle of the city. And it's then about saying, what green space, what open spaces have you got near you? What, what can you access? What can mm. you as a school community help to, to look after and to, to engage with outside of your school grounds? Yeah. The other one though, in terms of, of the the more technical kind of carbon side of things often schools and uh, academy chains and local authorities are taking quite a technical carbon focus to this yeah we've got a carbon footprint in the site and we exactly are, that and you Let's, think i don't know how to do that <laughs> and they they bring someone in from a very scientific uh, environmental management perspective who are then going to have lots of spreadsheets mm. and they're going to look at all the numbers and work out what they can do to minimize their carbon mm-hmm. uh, emissions and the reality is carbon is one part of this story. There's also nature. Mm. There's also the social aspect in the sense of how we engage and connect as a society. And we can't just solve this situation by counting numbers and sorting out the carbon. Yes. We also need to think about the biodiversity and the, the our impact on the rest of nature and our relationship with nature. Mm. And, and maybe that's something else we could talk about is that nature connectedness as well. So what schools need to realize is actually this runs in parallel. We need to be doing these curriculum aspects as well as the uh, site-wide infrastructure elements as well. And it's not that one needs to come first Mm -hmm. or that they can't happen uh, one and then the other. Mm. What we have found is that by exploring the curriculum in this way, you then get young people who turn around and say, oh, what about the Start lights? Start asking the tricky school? questions. Yeah. yeah, exactly that. And then the, the sort of the, the cogs and things start to turn. And then, but what's actually happened is then we've found schools where the students have then been part of finding the solutions. So mm-hmm. they've done research to find organizations and companies that will help support schools um, and, and make these things happen rather than just sort of wagging their finger and saying, this is bad. Yes. Um, it's then actually helping to, to solve those. And so I'm just aware of, of time and I could talk to you forever about this because it's first absolutely fascinating. But uh, firstly, I want to know, is there plans for a secondary school version, which you must get asked all the time? 
There is. So it becomes more challenging as soon as you move beyond key stage three. Right. So we fully intend, partly because the resources that we have uh, explored and found lend themselves to, to secondary schools. Mm. There's so many good resources from charities and organisations that are, that are perfect and, and really well designed for secondary. So at key stage three, this would really lend itself. So year seven, eight and nine, right. perfect. But one of the bigger problems is GCSE and A-level, schools are so tied to the sense yeah, of teaching yeah, subjects yeah. and teaching in preparation for those that to find a way to embed this, uh, that's something that potentially is much, much bigger. And I know that there's things like the uh, GCSE and natural history coming through. Right. But I think what we're saying is that's, None of that is enough. And there's lots of mm-hmm. other organisations, Teach the Future, are asking for similar sort of uh, demands in that sense as well, that we need a, a bigger overhaul mm. to find a way to, to best address this. There's conversations around COP26, actually, where there are rumours that climate education will become mandatory. This is sort of globally, that wow. governments will commit to something. But yeah. it's then to say, well, what will that look like? And I think the worst case do scenario... Do we have to consult on it for five years before we get on and do exactly it? Exactly <laughs> that. But also the worst case scenario would be if it became some sort of silo within the yes. PSHE, within yes. some sort of pastoral element where it's done during tutor time or mm. it's sort of added on or bolted onto something. And yeah. then it becomes very uh, piecemeal. Yes. And, and this, in order to do this, this needs to be widespread and across the curriculum. The nature connection, yes. connectedness bit is a really important bit, and I really should mention this. So there's an academic called Miles Richardson at the University of Derby who has done all sorts of research around nature connectedness, exploring the idea of actually, it's not just about spending time in nature, but it's about the quality of the relationships right. and the activities that we do and, and how we actually engage with the rest of nature. And so much of what we've done within the curriculum is framed around that, is framed around the idea of redressing that balance between humans and the rest of nature Mm -hmm. and flipping that relationship because so much of what we teach is about humans as apart from nature and so much of our psyche and thinking is around those ideas and what we need fundamentally is from a very young age for children to think differently about that Mm -hmm. and to think of themselves as a part of the rest of nature and one of the things that we do with the curriculum is the whole school community the governors parents students staff all take this special nature connection test. It's a little index where they answer five questions and it gives them a score about the quality of their relationship with nature. And what we're then doing is tracking that through the oh, curriculum brilliant. to see how it develops. Yeah. Because also what we're wanting to do with the curriculum is as well to reinvigorate the sense of outdoor learning and the mm. use of space. So one of the things that we say is it's quite artificial how we live within boxes and how students spend so much of their time sat down at a desk inside yeah, yeah, yeah. this it's completely not how humans were designed you know we need to spend time outside and so finding opportunities within the normal day mm-hmm. to then spend that little extra time outside and even if it just begins with five minutes within a lesson and that that, that becomes normalized that you mm-hmm. then go outside but also showing teachers how learning can happen anywhere yeah and that learning you could learn maths outside. And there's mm. so many, again, organisations who are championing this and have been for decades. But again, it's trying to make that the mainstream and, yeah. and make that acceptable. Yeah. Do you find that with primary schools, it's with primary school aged children as well, it's almost it's quite an easy sell. Do you know, like, because they're, they're not too influenced. Like, I just think, I just imagine with a group of teenagers who spend their Saturdays on the high street, 
going shopping or you know and I know that's really stereotypical but I also know that that's what a lot of you know young teenagers will do and there's that peer pressure to to fit in and to be cool and to not maybe not care we're, we're told that our teenagers are really in, in, um, engaged in this but but maybe I think there's quite a subset that aren't do you think it's easier with primary schools because they just get it primary school age kids don't they that that yeah. idea of fairness and you know wanting everybody and to protect animals and all that kind of thing yeah exactly that and it's we need to really develop and foster that sense mm. of those they're sort of they uh, they they're sort of intuitive in the sense mm. that yeah, young is, people yeah, yeah. just have them and it's almost like they get uh pushed out and, yeah. and uh pushed down so year sixes are just wonderful in the sense of their enthusiasm and energy around this and the way that they communicate it. They've got so much energy mm. and they really do understand it and, and get this. It's interesting with the Nature Connection research, there's a teenage dip. Oh, so, is there? Yeah, young people uh, during their teenage years feel less of a connection with the natural world and the rest of nature, but then it gets picked back up. Right. What we need to do is keep fostering it so there isn't a teenage dip, yes. actually, that it continues on. Um, later in our life because we know that so much of this is tied into our mental health into our well-being mm, as well mm. you know that we, we know um one, one of the things we talk about is tree bathing actually yeah and when we were touring the, the pioneer schools i did an assembly and as part of that i showed a lady sat in a forest and we talked about the concept of just taking in your surroundings and breathing in the clean air and hearing the sounds and i think it's so valuable to find opportunities within the curriculum to actually embed that and to mm. have a kind of academic uh inquisitiveness around that as well as the experiential mm. but you're exactly right that we need that, that it is an easy sell in one sense it's also an easy sell because primary schools are so set up for this uh kind of cross-curricular learning mm, as well yeah. where you do have specialist teachers who take the lead in certain areas but teachers are so much more comfortable in teaching part of yes. maths and some english and, and the idea that those blur mm. and I think what's going to be really interesting in the next few years is can we find, and I know there are examples of this in some schools, but could we find a way that can be mainstreamed that then builds on that and brings it into the secondary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think there's so many questions about what's happening in secondary schools where uh, knowledge becomes very siloed Mm. and also then teachers, sorry, students end up missing out on certain things because they have chosen certain subjects Mm. and so for something like the climate and nature emergency you think well how can we find a way to educate that all the way through to at yeah 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 that if someone's not doing geography or not doing science that they won't miss out Mm. on yeah 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 it'd be really interesting as well to see how these kids that have had this uh curriculum at primary school level then kind of react to a you know a mainstream secondary curriculum and whether um, you know, hopefully we've given them enough agency that they can start asking questions in their secondary school yeah. about why aren't we learning more about this and why aren't we doing more about this? And, and hopefully that will be part of the, the jigsaw that shifts to change, maybe. Yeah, well, what's been interesting already in some of the conversations is teachers saying, look, we really value this at primary. So there are aspects of, of uh, oracy or aspects of performance mm. or engaging with the natural world that they value and prioritise and develop. And then as soon as they move to secondary school, those sorts of skills or those sorts of knowledge are suddenly downplayed and there's a priority on something else. Yes. And I think sometimes um, anecdotally, those sorts of students often can feel a little bit disenfranchised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little sad in that sense Mm. that what they perceive to be really important suddenly isn't. Yeah. And and I think that's a, a, a balance to find as well. Yeah. 
So I guess um, some top tips for anybody listening, whether they're a parent or a teacher or they've got nieces, nephews, whatever. Where where do we start with getting our schools on board? Obviously, inviting them all to this. October the 25th. Yes, there's um, an online event where we're going to publicise the material. You can find any of the information, though, on the website at ministryofeco.org. ministryofeco.org. And I'll pop all that in the show notes. Um, there's lots of video content and reports and all sorts of material that you can explore. And what I would say is uh, get together with some other parents, mm. get together with other teachers and then pass this information on and find some sort of way in. And that might be through a single event. It might be through one sort of idea, but find a way to then begin building. Right. So just start off with, I mean, even things, I guess, like, you know, Christmas coming up, can you get your PTA to organise a Christmas jumper swap day? And then from there, some conversations might come around fashion or uniform or, do you know, like you yeah. say, you, trying to use these one-off events that might not seem so daunting and so insurmountable to then as sort of springboard you on to, to other things. And I think COP26 as well is the one that it's going to be in the media or it already is, mm. but we're going to hear this nonstop. And so to then make sure that those conversations are having in schools and move those conversations on to then say, well, what is it we can yeah. do? How do we respond? Because also I think um, so much to achieving this is actually working with your local community and then the school being part of that yes. and affecting change with the people around you at that sort of medium scale mm. is the way that we um, change, change the world. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I know that there's loads of um, resources for schools to literally pick up and run with around COP26, aren't there? Because I think it's most schools are on half term, aren't they? And then, and then it come back and then that's kind of cop week then. But yes. if schools are thinking, oh, crap, we haven't planned anything around this, there's stuff that they can literally pick up and take and, and deliver. Yes, definitely. And the other thing I should mention as well is AIM High is running a great big climate lesson live from COP26. So we're going to be streaming from Glasgow. And that's something that any school, it's an hour long lesson that they oh, can then pick up and, and watch. And we're hoping for thousands and thousands of young people to be on that call. Oh, brilliant. And I will link to that as well. Paul, thank you for doing all this. I can't even, no, thank well, you. A, for doing the podcast, but B, for, you know, trawling through all those resources and the curriculum and pulling all that together and things. And, um, you know, it feels like your ambition, you know, for half of schools. But I mean, how amazing would that be if, if, if that can happen and if we can get schools on board and really really feels like there would be some momentum and some, some change yeah. happening? Yeah, well, at the moment already. Every day we're receiving emails from either parents or teachers or increasingly, actually, yesterday there was an academic who looked at it and said, Look, I did my PhD research on this. This is exactly what I was calling for when I did my PhD 10 oh, years amazing. ago. And, and people who just want to get on board as well. So mm. I think this is also um, the people within this space are so supportive and everyone wants to um, help each other. Yes. And I think the more that we can do that, then we're only going to amplify everyone's impact. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I know you're a busy man. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. 
If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review, and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is, and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time.